0: Second Thessalonians chapter two, beginning in verse 13, it says, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel. For the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now, may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace comfort your hearts and establish you. In every good word and work. Remember that Paul wrote the little epistle of Second Thessalonians for an explanation. And the explanation had to do with the day of the Lord. A day is coming. A day of judgment. A day of reckoning, if you will. And in chapter 2, Paul reminded the believers that an apostasy... Must first take place in verses 1 through 3, that the temple must be built in verses 4 and 5, that the restrainer must be removed in verses 6 through 12, and that the church has to go through a process of growth, maturation, fruition, if you will, in verses 6. Well, actually, in in verses 13 through 17. So in the first part of the chapter, Paul warned that the future followers of the Antichrist are perishing in verse 10, deceived in verses 10 and 11, doomed in verse 12. Now, people who study First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians love the prophecy portions, and I don't blame them. When I was in Albuquerque this last week, Skip Heitzig, who's the pastor of Calvary in Albuquerque, was in Riverside and they were doing a prophecy conference. And at the prophecy conference, there was Joel Rosenberg, who is one of our friends, and and, um, Tim LaHaye, who wrote the Left Behind series, Um, Greg Laurie and Skip Heitzig. They had a lot of amazing and and, and incredible things that they were going over. But Paul carefully weaves the issues not only of future prophecy, but also current responsibility. Out of all of the prophecy conferences that I've ever attended, very few people have actually taught this particular section of the scripture. Paul isn't writing these words In this context, to simply satisfy a person's curiosity about future events. Paul is writing these words in the context of a group of people who are suffering hardship and persecution. These are people who aren't simply losing their livelihood. Some of them are losing their lives. And in the crucible of pain, intense pain, physical pain. Emotional pain, spiritual distress. You can imagine there's their own intensity and and signature. Believers, when they are in pain, typically question God's goodness and God's love and God's mercy. They say, how can you allow me to go through this trial, through this depression, through this hardship? And think about it. If you've ever been in pain, and if you've ever been in unrelenting pain, there's typically only one thing that is going through your heart. I want the pain to go away. I want it to cease. I want it to desist. We rarely think about trials that bring maturity and growth. When I was preparing this message, I was reviewing um, a very rare genetic it's, it's, it's actually a dysfunction of the autonomic and sensory nervous system. It's called familial dystotomia, but it's also known as Riley-Day syndrome. And you may not have ever heard of Riley-Day syndrome, but it is, it is a unique problem. It's a genetic abnormality. It is found often in a group of people called the Ashkenazim. There's two types of Jews: Sephardim, which is from Spain and uh, uh, in the western part of Europe, and the Ashkenazi. And the carrier frequency in Ashkenazi Jews are one in 27. The frequency in the general population is unknown, but some scientists have speculated that it's, it's as many as one in 400,000. But what this disease does, what Riley-Day syndrome does, is it's a progressive disease. whereby the child is unable to feel pain. Now, when the child is unable to feel pain, there's an absence of overflow tears and corneal drying. Um, Children who are born with this disease have a very difficult time bonding with their mother. They drool because they're not able to... Feel their own palate. So they have swallowing and feeding problems. They're usually short of stature. They usually have poor muscle tone. They, and, and they have inappropriate temperature controls because you don't feel pain, you don't feel cold. It's never cold to you. It's never hot to you. And so if you're never cold and you're never hot, you're not able to determine the climate that you're in. There's blotchy reddening of the, of the skin. And, and typically you might be thinking, what a wonderful disease to have. Can you imagine being a prize fighter or a football player? You never have to feel any pain. But the problem is people with this disease usually never live past 15 years of age. If you had a child who stopped growing and stopped maturing, you would panic. And you would call every specialist and you would call every doctor who would be willing to listen to you. And Paul understands that even in the midst of pain and even in the midst of sorrow and even in the midst of persecution, that people in pain need help and they need hope and they need consolation and they need comfort. And so Paul is going to do this in this particular passage as he contrasts the first part with the second part. The followers of Jesus are saved in verse 13, sanctified by the Holy Spirit in verse 13. They believe the truth about the gospel. He understands that people are curious about the future. He understands that prophecy students want to focus on the identity of the Antichrist, the rebuilding of the temple. What will happen to Israel and what will happen to the Jewish nation? But we can't allow our curiosity about the future to excuse or escape our responsibility in the present world. That's the point. And what are those responsibilities for Paul in part? He is inviting the reader to believe the truth in verses 13 and 14, to guard the truth in verse 15, to practice the truth in verses 16 and 17. The truth about what? The truth about Jesus. A generation earlier, a proud Roman governor faced the Jewish rabbi who had been brought to him by trial and the religious leaders. He was brought for execution and trial. And remember why Jesus was on trial? The reason why he was on trial, even according to the religious leaders, was this man. Proclaims that he's the leader and the king of the Jews. And we won't have any king but Caesar. This man is upsetting the apple cart and overthrowing the religious system. Here's what they're saying. Jesus is a threat to our religious establishment. Were they right? Yes. They were right. You see, it's really not a crime if you claim to be God and you are God. It's really not a crime if you claim to be the Messiah and you are the Messiah. It's really not a crime if you say, I came from the Father to die for sins and to rise from the dead. And so Paul writes in verse 13, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. Paul repeatedly gives thanks to God in his letters. He does it over and over again in the book of Thessalonians, in the second Thessalonians, in Galatians, in Romans, over and over again. He's giving thanks in this particular instance. What is Paul giving thanks for? He's giving thanks for the way the people in Thessaloniki have responded to the message of salvation, the truth about Jesus, the will and the work of God in their lives. Remember, he shows up on the scene. He tells them about Jesus. He tells them the story about how this rabbi was crucified, died, buried, that he came back to life and of his incredible. Of his incredible claims. That if you will. Believe him and believe and trust him. Your sins can be forgiven. You can have eternal life. And so that's exactly what Paul is giving thanks for. They believe the truth about Jesus. And you probably heard the expression, the gospel truth. Some of you have probably heard people say, look, look, I'm telling you the truth. It's the gospel truth. Well, what does that mean? What it means, it's truth straight up. It's undiluted truth. We use the expression when we want to emphasize the certainty of what we are saying. In this particular instance, when Paul is speaking of the gospel, he's not talking about it from an English idiomatic expression. He's talking about the good news that Jesus Christ came from heaven, died on the cross, rose from the dead the, uh, here's, he's in effect saying that the gospel's true. And in the next few sentences, Paul not only encourages them in their belief in the truth in verses 13 and 14, not only to guard the truth in verse 15, when he writes, You, brethren, are beloved by the Lord. And then he also writes at the end in his prayer, Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us. Here's what he's basically saying. That salvation begins with the love of God and continues with the choice of God and proceeds to set the believer apart. That is apart from sin to righteousness. And so here's his his message. You're loved by God. Now, for many of you, you go right, right. Heard it, been there, done that, heard that. I don't, I, I know John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I, I know uh, Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. I know Romans chapter five, verse eight here in his love in that while we were sinners, Christ died. And all of that's true. But Paul isn't trying to make a theological or a philosophical point. He's not trying to just simply lay a theological or a philosophical foundation in order for you to understand the nature and the character of God. Although that is happening, he wants them to know that God loves them. And I want you again to remind you of the context. He loves you. Remember what's happening I'm hurt. I'm in pain. I'm under pressure. I don't know if I'm going to be able to go forward. I don't know if I'm going to be able to survive. God loves you. God loves you. The saved saint is chosen by God, has been set aside by the Holy Spirit. Paul understands that the natural man prefers self and sin. Paul knows that. The wages of sin is death. Paul knows that no one comes to the father unless they're drawn by God's Holy Spirit. It is a supernatural work of the spirit. Paul is writing that the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to hear and respond in faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I remember when I was a kid growing up and as a small child, people would tell me about God and they would tell me about Jesus and they would tell me about the love of God. And they would read Bible verses to me. I remember there was one man in particular. He played second base for the California Angels. His name was Albie Pearson. Wonderful man of God. His, uh, he, he had this amazing ministry. And his daughters, um, he had five girls. And I went to school with his girls. And one of his girls was my age. And I got invited to her birthday party. I must have been all of 10 or 11 years old. And and I went over to their house and he had these bar stools made out of of uh, baseball bats. I just thought it was all very cool. And he had all of his baseball memorabilia. And he asked me about Who I was and he asked me about myself as a young kid and then he began to talk to me about Jesus. He began to talk to me about the Bible and he began to talk to me about the love of God and and what Jesus had done. And I remember not understanding very much about what he was saying, but I remember weeping and crying. I remember my heart beginning to break and my hands beginning to sweat. There was this supernatural sensitivity as the Holy Spirit began to knock on the door of my heart and plead with me to believe the truth that I was a sinner in need of a savior. But I thought, I don't understand this. I don't even know what all of this means. I don't even know what this is all about. And I walked away from that. It wouldn't be for years later as a young teenager in rebellion and disobedience that my heart would become. Bitter and angry towards God and Christians. But God had a different plan. God's plan was that I was going to be saved, that I would hear and respond to the gospel. And that's part of the point that Paul is making, because only the Holy Spirit can do such a thing. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit convicts a person of their sin, of righteousness and judgment, in the sense that we're able to recognize our need and that we have this desire for that need to be met. And, of course, the desire is... For life instead of death. For forgiveness instead of rejection. And so the Holy Spirit causes the sinner to see the cross and the Lord Jesus who died on that cross and perhaps see and understand that it is the sinner who deserves death, but that Jesus died in our place and for our behalf. The just for the unjust, Paul would later write. The innocent for the guilty. The pure for the impure. It was Jesus who told his disciples in John 6:44, "No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him and I will raise him up at the last day." In John chapter 12 verse 32 and 33, Jesus told the apostles, "And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me." This he said signifying by what manner or by what death he should die. No wonder Paul would later tell the people of Corinth for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God, the power of God to do what? It's the power of God to save us, to cleanse us. It's the power of God to bring us from a place of bitter and wicked rebellion to a place of dependence and love. To save us, to cleanse us, to forgive us, to restore us. And so when you come to the middle of the passage in verse 13, where it says. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you. Paul reminds them that God loves them and chose them. In other words, salvation has its origin in the heart of God, in the nature of God, in the will of God, in the love of God. And then the Bible teaches that God chose those who he would save before the foundation of the earth. And the word chose you for salvation is amazing in its breadth and in its scope. As a matter of fact, in this particular passage, in verse 13, this is the only appearance of this particular verb form. It's the Greek word, a Now, that may not mean a whole lot to you, but the scholar and Bible commentator Leon Morris notes this particular word is exactly the same word that the Jewish scholars used when they translated Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 18, where the Bible says, and the Lord hath aboutched." in the old King James, it says about in the new King James, it says chosen. It's the same word. And the Lord hath chosen thee this day to be his peculiar people. In other words, it was the word that was used to describe God's choice in choosing the Jewish people to be the receptacle of revelation and the, the, the nation that is going to physically and biologically bring forth the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah. When people tell me, you know, the Jewish people are the chosen people. I say, I agree with you. Chosen for what? Chosen to bring forth the Messiah. You are the chosen people, according to the New Testament. You are chosen in Christ. For what? To be with him. To love him. To have friendship with him, to have fellowship with him, to be his, the way I would put it, his constant companion throughout eternity. That's the point that is being made. As a matter of fact, the Bible elsewhere uses the word election to describe this choice. In what way are we chosen? In the same way Israel is chosen. Just like God has a plan for Israel, God has a plan for you. God loves you. He has always loved you and set His salvation upon you. And remember, He is doing this in the context of pain and persecution and trial and intimidation. You want to know why? Because the Thessalonians need to know that they're secure. Is there anyone who loves me? Is there anyone who cares about me? Is there anyone who's thinking about me? You know, one of the advantages of being an infinite being is he has infinite ability. Even though you may have not thought about it today, but when you woke up this morning, Jesus was thinking about you. He loves you every moment of every day. Jesus is inviting you encouraging you to extend that friendship and that fellowship. Jesus himself said, And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. That's what it says in John chapter 10, verse 28. When I was going over that particular passage, in our Bible study here at Calvary, I remember using the illustration of my Uncle Richard. My Uncle Richard is my great-uncle Richard. That means he's my mom's uncle. He's my grandfather's brother. And when I was about seven or eight years old, my Uncle Richard would play a game with my brother and with my sister. My Uncle Richard was about six feet tall, and he weighed about 400 pounds. And he would play a game with us. The game was, I'm going to put a quarter in my hand. And if you can get me to open my hand, the money's yours. Now, when you're seven or eight and you're trying to pry open the hands of a guy who's six feet tall and 400 pounds, think it's pretty difficult? It's pretty difficult. But we came up with a plan. The three Geraces. Here was the plan. My little sister would start scratching his head. My brother would tickle him under his armpit until he squealed and he lost bowel and body movement. And then the hand would open and out would come the quarter. Now you're thinking, that's a horrible illustration. Well, it's a horrible illustration in the sense that as human beings, you can get human beings to do human being things. But you can't get God to let go of you. You can't get God to undo His plan, His purpose, His character, His love. And so the same God who ordained the end that salvation also ordained the means to the end. And that's belief of the truth. And that's why it says He loves you. He chose you. And look what it says and at the end of the verse. Sanctification. That means He set you apart From sin to himself, to which he called you, and at the end of verse 13, and belief in the truth. That's your job. Your part and your responsibility is to believe the truth. And remember the context of chapter 2. He's contrasting it with the belief of the followers of Antichrist. The followers of Antichrist believe the lie. The followers of Jesus Christ believe the truth. It really is that simple. The followers of Antichrist believe the lie. And what is the lie? The lie is that Jesus isn't the Christ. The lie is that Jesus is not the Christ. The lie is that Jesus is not the satisfying solution to the problem of sin. The lie, in part, is I'm fine just the way that I am. I don't need God. I don't need Jesus. The lie is ignorant people need a little bit further information. Broken people and hurting people need better water. Inexpensive fuel. Food. But that's not what the Bible says. The followers of the Antichrist believe the lie. And the followers of Jesus Christ believe the truth and the believer believes the gospel with all of his or with all of her heart. And the believer believes Jesus loves them and died for them. And will raise them from the dead. The believer doesn't simply believe the content of the message as a message, but the sum and the substance and the source of the message that it is Jesus himself who is making the promise and the Holy Spirit is delivering on the promise. And so the gospel isn't belief in the Catholic Church. It isn't belief in the Protestant Church. It isn't even belief in some sort of Christian construct of of a group of information about something, but rather it is a friendship and a relationship with someone. And that's the point. That's the point that he's making. When a person believes the gospel and receives the Holy Spirit's promise, the person of the indwelling Lord Jesus, that person becomes saved. They believe the promise. And listen carefully to what I'm about to say. No person has ever been saved. No person has ever been saved who did not believe the promise of God, the word of God, the gospel of God. No person has been saved. Who refuses to believe and accept the gospel. And remember what the New Testament teaches. The New Testament teaches that anyone and everyone who comes to Jesus. He will in no wise cast out. When Jesus extends the invitation and he says, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, come to me and I'll give you rest. Jesus told the religious leaders in John 8, unless you believe that I am who I say that I am, you will perish in your sin. And so the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, remember, a person isn't lost because they belong to the wrong church or they were born at the wrong time. A person is lost. Because they refuse to believe the truth about themselves and the provision of God in Christ. The Lord will not force a single person. The Lord will not manipulate a single person to experience his love and enjoy his forgiveness. He won't trick you and he won't manipulate you and he won't make false promises to you. Hell was not created as a bargaining tool to manipulate the fearful into fellowship. The Bible says that hell was created for the devil and his angels. Hell was created as a cosmic place of quarantine to separate the rebels in their rebellion. It's never. It's never. It was never. And it continues never to be God's first choice. This is what the Bible means when it says it's his will that none perish, but all have everlasting life. And so Paul is contrasting the difference in the destiny and destination of the follower of Antichrist with the follower of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 14, look what it says, to which he called you, that is, God, the father and Jesus, the son by the Holy Spirit, he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What began in the past finds fruition in the present and in the future, the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when you look at that word, it's almost impossible to tell you what it means. In the past, I've tried to explain the word glory. Again, we're making a huge mistake if we forget the contrast and the context of the chapter. Paul is contrasting the destiny of the saved with the destiny of the lost. And he's writing to people who are in pain. He's writing to people who are suffering. He are, he's writing to people who are under an enormous blanket of pain. And personal persecution, and when you feel smothered by pain, and when you feel smothered by persecution, when you feel smothered like you can't come up for air, Paul offers them this hope that they're saved, that they're bound for glory. And that they're going to share the glory of Jesus, that the believer is in Jesus and that the glory isn't something we simply hope to possess in the future, but it's something that we have in the here and the now. What do I mean by that? Remember John 17, and the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. Jesus prays in John seventeen twenty two. Romans eight thirty, moreover, whom he predestined them he called, whom he called these he justified, whom he justified he glorified. In John seventeen twenty two and Romans eight thirty, the word glory is in the past tense. What does that mean? Does it refer to what Jesus has done in the past, but will perfect in the future? Or does it refer to what Jesus has completely done in the past and will be revealed in the future? I think in 1 John chapter 3, when it says, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestined to be conformed into the image of his own dear son. That's the idea. It's a revelation that is going to take place. And remember what the word glory means. It comes from a Greek word doxus, which means to possess a perfect light. To be full of that perfect light. It means to dwell in that perfect light. And in this particular case, I suspect that it means to possess and dwell in the light that has been given by God the Father to God the Son. Remember the Bible speaks of the Father as dwelling in unapproachable and inexpressible light. And remember what else I said? That the word glory, even though it is a small word, it's a word That communicates in an imperfect way the perfection of the attributes of God. In other words, the Bible promises the believer shall be glorified with Christ as an heir of God. And so the word came to mean the sum and the substance of the totality of the attributes and the character and the nature of God. So does that mean that the believer has the nature and the character of God? No. What does it mean? It means that we participate with and in the nature and the character of God because we are living in friendship and fellowship with God. That's the idea. In Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, it says the Spirit Himself, that's the Holy Spirit, bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God, and if children, then heirs, and if heirs of God, then joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him. That's the key. We are heirs if indeed we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together. Here's Paul's argument Paul's argument is the suffering that you're experiencing, the pain that you're experiencing, the persecution that you're experiencing. Jesus suffered, Jesus was persecuted, Jesus was pressed. And pressured. The suffering is temporary. The glory is eternal. The persecution is just for a moment. And God has a plan. Here's the plan to mature you, to grow you. That's the idea. Paul is building an argument. God loves you, God chose you, God set you apart. God called you when you were a sinner. He called you to believe the truth. You believe the truth. And He has saved you. And He has set you apart. And He has promised you a future. And here's Paul's point. When the followers of Antichrist believe Satan's lie, when they reject the love of the truth, they won't be saved. Wiersbe rightly points out that being neutral about the truth is a dangerous thing. But I would say it's even an impossible thing. How can you be neutral about the truth? Well, maybe the Bible's true. Maybe it's not. Maybe the story is true. Maybe it's not. Maybe the sacrifice of Jesus happened. Maybe it didn't. Maybe the, the, the resurrection took place. Maybe it didn't. But Paul is reminding them. You heard, you believed, you responded, you embraced the truth. And so in verse 15, when Paul says, therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle, Paul moves from the objective of salvation, or the objectives of salvation to the obligation of salvation. You're saved. Stand fast. In what sense do we stand fast? The standing fast isn't in the sense of a theological predisposition concerning a pre-tribulational, mid-tribulational, or post-tribulational rapture. He's not standing fast in a theological construct. He's saying stand fast under the pressure. Hold on! Stand fast! Why? Because the earth is coming out from underneath us. It feels like the sky is falling. It feels like the earth is collapsing and the oceans are flooding and the storm is blowing and the buildings are collapsing. And so when the storms blow and the buildings fall, Paul says, stand fast! Why? Why? We've been warned. Remember, the warning is these things are going to happen. We know that human beings are going to face political upheavals. They're going to face social upheavals. They're going to experience religious apostasy. Port-au-Prince is going to drown. The earth is going to be shaken. Earthquakes are going to come. Weather patterns are going to change. Things are going to be difficult, but we hold on. We plant our feet firmly on the ground of our salvation in Christ. We hold on. We grip tight to the one thing that never changes, the teachings and traditions of Jesus that's been handed down by the Apostles. We know that there's going to be a final curtain. We know that the curtain is going to be drawn. We know that we're going to come to the end of the age. But Jesus Christ is still the Lord. God is in control. We know that Christians are going to be persecuted on the outside. They're going to be polluted on the inside. Some are going to become apostates. Some are going to continue among us as unbelievers and make believers. They're going to come through the door. They're going to sit in the seat where you're sitting. They're going to have a Bible and they're going to have a smile. They're going to tell you that they know God and that they love God and that they know Jesus and they love Jesus. But it's not true. Because they have a relationship with a a religious system instead of with the Lord. Their heart is still a cauldron of doubt and disobedience and unbelief. We know that there are people who would rather be identified with a religious system than connected by faith and love to the living Savior. And if in your wildest dreams you imagine that you have a right relationship with God because you go to Calvary Chapel. You couldn't be more wrong. You couldn't be more deceived. People don't go to heaven because they go to Calvary Chapel. People go to heaven. Because they've been chosen by God and drawn by the Spirit and believe the truth about Jesus and have received it in their heart and begin to live their lives as if that's true. So what do we do? Paul says, stand fast, hold on. We hold on both to the promise and the prophecy. We embrace the word. We refuse the lies of the devil. We reject the teaching of the cults. We remember that even among so-called Christians, some will seek to sugarcoat the gospel, sugarcoat the message that our sin isn't really such a bitter pill to swallow and that we can rebel against God. It's OK. But I'm here to tell you it's not OK. Jesus didn't save you so that you could continue in rebellion. Jesus saved you so that you could walk in friendship and fellowship with him. So what are the traditions? Literally, the word in the original language means that thing that has been handed down to me. That's what it means. In this case, it means the revelation of God that has been given to Jesus ...and imparted to the apostles and written down in this book. That's what it means. Paul's writings and the record of the other apostles contained in our New Testament are those traditions... It is the revelation of God in Christ. So when Paul uses the term tradition, he doesn't mean man-made idea. He doesn't mean man-made religion. He doesn't mean ideas outside the revelation of God's Word. He's speaking of the teachings of Jesus given to the apostles, handed down by the apostles, and recorded in the Bible that you have in your hand. And that's why we place such important emphasis on the content of the Bible. And I don't Think I'm overstating the issue when I say that Jesus rejected man made religious ideas not based on God's word. That's what it says in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. Paul issued a warning in Colossians 2 8. He said, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. He sets in contrast The wisdom and revelation of God in Christ and everything else. That's the idea. Paul affirms that God works in the world through the word of God and through the spirit of God. Now, this makes perfect sense. If God works through the word of God and the spirit of God. Satan opposes the word of God. And resists and rejects the spirit of God. And so for the person who opposes the word of God and rejects the spirit of God. Can't be saved. You can't have it both ways. Satan knows that fallen human beings resist the truth and embrace deceit. And that's why he says. Stand fast. Hold on. And by the way, the word hold is related to another word, which means strength or might or power. In other words, he means hold on with all your might. That's the idea. And so clearly the faith once delivered is not to be confused with man-made religions or man-made traditions and they're to be held on with all your might. And then it says in verses 16 and 17. Now, may the our Lord Jesus himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your heart and establish you in every good word and work. That should be the church's crest. That's the herald on our shield of faith. If 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 there's a thing that I would use to describe who we are and what we do, it should be every good word and work. Everything that God has said in his word, we uphold it. We give the word of God and we keep on working for Jesus. The last two verses are a brief prayer. He's offering a prayer of intercession. And one of the things that I want to draw to your attention is the content of the prayer. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and a good hope by grace. Get me out of here you're laughing because that's not the prayer, is it? The prayer isn't. I pray. That the pain will go away. I pray that the darkness will go away. I pray that the emptiness will go away. I pray that the hurt and the pain and the emptiness and the torture and the pressure. I pray that it will go away. But he doesn't pray that he doesn't pray that the pain will go away and he doesn't pray that the persecution will disappear. He prays for bigger shoulders. Rather than a lighter load. He prays for bigger shoulders and a a larger heart. Make my shoulders larger. Make my heart bigger. Give me a way. Give me a way. When the storms come, I want calm. And when the pain comes, I want relief. But that's not the path to maturity. And that's not the path to growth. The path to maturity and the path to growth is not around the storm, but it's through the storm. Do you remember the passage in Isaiah, chapter 43, verse two, where it says. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you and through the rivers, they will not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. Three times Isaiah uses the word through. I'll be with you through the storm. I'll be with you through the water. I'll be with you through the fire. But Lord, in a storm, bad things happen. And in the water, people drown. And in the fire, people get burnt. Do you remember the song? I beg your pardon. How did the rest go? I never promised you a rose garden. Along with the sunshine, there's got to be a little it's rain sometime. I know what you're. Lord, I want the roses, but I don't want the thorns and I don't want the manure. Then guess what? Then you don't want growth, and you don't want maturity. In second Corinthians chapter one, it says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus, the father of mercies and the God of comfort who comforts us all in our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. The first ability when you go through the storm is the ability to comfort others. You know, there are other benefits. Dependence on God. Another benefit is learning to give thanks and everything. But you know what the truth is? The truth is some people will pray a prayer. I want to depend upon you, Lord. Lord, I want to be able to comfort others. Lord, I want to grow up and mature. But you're not willing to face the storm. You're not willing to go through the water. Or through the fire. So what is Paul offering? Love. Consolation. Hope. By grace. The source? God. What else does he do? Look at how Paul decides to help the hurting. Are you hurt? Are you pain? Do you need help? Paul says, I'll give you compassion. I'll give you instruction. I'll offer you exhortation and intercession. I'll pray for you. I'll pray with with you and encourage you. I'll remind you that there's a God who loves you. I'll remind you that your sins are forgiven. I'll remind you that heaven is a real place. Too many people are willing to invite people to believe the truth, and some people are even willing to guard the truth. But very few people are willing to practice the truth. But Paul is inviting the people in Thessalonica to defend the truth, but also to demonstrate the truth. My friends, You cannot share what you do not believe. You cannot share what you do not believe. One of my favorite quotes by Warren Wiersbe is, Lazarus didn't have to give lectures on the resurrection. People only had to look at him. And they believed. Can you imagine Lazarus showing up? the very fact that He's there says something very, very powerful. God brings dead people back to life. And you know what? It could very well be that you can insert your name. You don't necessarily have to give lectures on pain, suffering, What do you do when you're hurting? Compassion. Instruction. Exhortation. Intercession. But we're not even close to being done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, I pray for each and every person here. Lord, I pray for the person in that dark moment, in that painful moment, in that difficult moment. Lord, it makes perfect sense to me that we would want to avoid the pain. Lord, it makes perfect sense to me that we would run from the problem. But, Lord, if we want to grow up. Lord, we know that we must depend upon you. That we must embrace maturation and growth. that, Lord, we have to learn to give thanks to you in everything. And that, Lord, our hope is real and our future is certain and that we live in a world that believes a lie and that is destined to die and that is doomed apart from the gospel. Lord, for that empty person, from that dark person, from that person in pain, Lord, I pray that the blanket for just a moment could be removed and that You would provide them with comfort and consolation and hope. Again, Lord, for the person who's empty, fill them. For the person who's in a dark place, give them light. For the person who's in a difficult circumstance, Lord, I pray that You would ultimately be their provision. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.